0: Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. And it's great to see. Each of you here with us, thanks, John, for reading the scriptures for us. John is our, our worship pastor, and we're just so thankful for um, Pastor John's leadership in, in so many ways here at the Brookside campus. And uh, especially if you're a first-time guest with us, I want to just extend a, a warm welcome to you this morning. And as we prepare to look at this passage uh, of God's word this morning, I'd love to open um, and ask God for his help in understanding his word. So um, if you'd bow with me while we do that. Father in heaven, um, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful that you um, have not left us um, sort of alone without a word from you, but that you have revealed yourself um, supremely in your son Jesus, um, but that you supremely also reveal yourself in, in your written word in the Bible. And so we're, we're so grateful that we have this treasure, this gift um, of your word that we can study together, that we can learn from, um, and we ask for your spirit's work um, to make this book come alive to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name uh, by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, when was the last time uh, that you felt like an outsider? Um, No one wants to be an outsider, right? And and this weekend, I was reminded of a time when I very much felt like an outsider. Um, This this weekend, I was at uh, Rachel's uh, family reunion, and it's for her mom's side of the family, the Voss family. And uh, the Vosses are are a large family. Rachel's mom is one of uh, nine children. So this family reunion regularly draws, you know, a hundred or more people. And I remember, you know, this was my fourth Heritage Days. That's what they call it, Voss Family Heritage Days. This was my fourth time of going this year. And, you know, I'm starting to feel like I belong there. I'm starting to feel like I fit in. But I remember the very first time I went to the Voss family reunion. Rachel and I had been engaged for less than a month. And I remember driving in the car and she's trying to, to outline, this is who goes with who. This is Aunt Debbie. This is Uncle Dick. And these are how everyone fits together. And, and I realized that when I was going to get there, I was walking into kind of one of these ultimate meet the family kind of moments. And, and the Voss family is Dutch. They're very Dutch. They're very, they're very proud that they're Dutch. Um, I am six foot three, and I'm one of the shorter people there. I have, I have a nephew who is um, 15 years old and, and six five. So rarely do I walk into a place and feel like I'm one of the short ones. But uh, in this very Dutch family, they love the, the saying "If you if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much." And so, you know, as this uh, as this Irish um, you know German kid coming in, I, I felt a little bit out of place uh, there. And, you know, everyone looks alike. Everyone's known one another for forever. And so, you know, if that's not the recipe for feeling like an outsider, I don't know what is. Now, now don't get me wrong. They, they all welcomed me. They, they loved me. But there were just some moments when I felt a little bit like I was in my big fat Greek wedding um, as I was there at this family reunion for the first time. And, and whether it's traveling to a family reunion or, or traveling to another country or, or moving to a new school— Uh, maybe visiting a new church, maybe some of you are feeling this right now, when you're in a new place, um, it's easy to feel like an outsider, to feel like an exile, or to feel like a stranger. And and as our culture becomes increasingly pluralistic and, and polarized, more and more people Uh, just even living in our culture today, feel like they're exiles or or an outsider, right? I mean, just think about um, the the political climate of today with with things being so polarized. If if you're a liberal, you feel like our country is way too conservative. If you're a conservative, you think it's way too liberal. If if you're a moderate, you think we're way too extreme on either side, right? Everyone feels like an outsider, and and there's no agreed-upon consensus about what is right and wrong or, or even how to decide which is which and as we increasingly have this pluralistic culture, it means that all of us with different perspectives are, are living closer together than ever, but we don't agree on the most kind of fundamental questions of reality, such as is there a God, and, and if there is a God, what is he like, and what is the good life, and how do we get that good life? So, so as Christians, how are we supposed to live in a pluralistic society like this? Uh, do we have any examples to, to guide us? Um, any, any sort of patterns to follow? And the answer is yes, we do. In the the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah gives us a pattern to follow, a way of living in the world. He tells us how to live in our city, in in Kansas City, not just just here in in Brookside or even Kansas City, Missouri, but in the Kansas City metro area from from the airport in the north to, to all the way out into the south part of Olathe. We're given this pattern of how are we to live in our city. You see, Christians, regardless of the surrounding culture, have always been... Exiles in one way or another. The book of First Peter describes God's peoples as, as exiles, as strangers, because we have a, kind of a foot in both worlds, that, that we are both people of this world and yet also we're citizens of heaven. Paul says, and so we're caught between these two worlds. So as exiles, how how are Christians, how are people of faith, to live in the communities in which they are called to be? Well, Christians are to seek the thriving of the community where they live, and and why is this? Because ultimately, you are not thriving. Unless your city is thriving. You are not thriving until your city is thriving. And, and there's a vast amount of difference, right, between, between thriving and, and merely surviving in your city. And we don't want to live in places where people are merely surviving or just barely getting by, right? We want to live in places where people are flourishing, especially the vulnerable are thriving, where they're experiencing the best of what God has for them, the, the fullness of his common grace and, and his special grace as well. And so this morning, as we look at the book of Jeremiah, we're going to see what prevents thriving, what produces thriving, and then what powers thriving. So, so what prevents it, what produces it, and then, and then lastly, what powers thriving in a city so first, what is it that prevents Christians from seeking the thriving, the flourishing of their city? And since we're kind of jumping in in the middle of this story, where we just picked up in the middle of Jeremiah, if you've been reading along with the open here Bible reading plan we've got going this year, you, you've maybe read some of this context, but for most of us, we're jumping into the middle of Jeremiah. And so there's a couple of questions we need to answer. And the, and the first is, well, who's Jeremiah? Um, and then we read, heard read here before us about Nebuchadnezzar and this people from Jerusalem that ends up in Babylon. So how did they get there? Well, first of all, who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the the text tells us, is a prophet. So he's someone who um, is specially tasked by God to speak for God to His people. And Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon, and Babylon had conquered the Assyrian Empire, and as well as many of the other um, nations and cities at this time. They were one of the powerful empires at this time. And So Nebuchadnezzar is the ruling emperor, king, and he subjugated many cities and nations, including the nation of Israel. And this is how the people of Jerusalem, God's people, end up in exile in the nation of Babylon. It says in verse 7 that they were sent into exile because They had disobeyed God, ultimately. We learn as we read through the book of Jeremiah and other parts of the Bible that they're sent into exile for their rebellion and disobedience against God. And God uses the nation of Babylon to accomplish his purposes. But he's clear that the ultimate reason that Israel is in Babylon as prisoners is not because somehow Babylon was just superior in its political power or military might, but because God has used this nation to put them into exile. But how long would they be there? This is the question that that they were all asking. How long are they going to end up stuck in Babylon? And the answer to that question depended on who you asked. If you asked the false prophets, and there were a lot of them at this time, people who claimed to speak for God but who weren't actually speaking for God, if you asked them, they said not very long. If you asked God's prophet, Jeremiah, the true prophet, they said a long time. So actually, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 28, if you just turn back one page to page 655, I want you to look at Jeremiah 28, verses 1 through 4, kind of pick it up here. And this is what what the text says. This is one of the false prophets, Hanaiah, who's who's claiming to speak for God. And he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of Babylon within two years— Within two years I will bring you back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon took away from this place, and I will also bring back to this back to this place Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim, King of Judah, and all the exiles from Jerusalem who went to Babylon. So Hananiah the false prophet says you're going to be there for two years, tops, twenty-four months. But if you look at Jeremiah twenty nine, ten, Jeremiah is clear that they're going to be there for a lot longer. Two years? Try two generations. Seventy years, Jeremiah says, they're going to be in exile in Babylon. Seventy years. Now there's a vast difference, right, between, between two years and seventy years. If you think back, what was the big news about this time two years ago, 2011? The, the big news this time two years ago was, was the killing of Osama bin Laden, right? This was still the, in the news that, that Osama bin Laden had been found and, and killed by the Navy SEALs. What was the big news 70 years ago? 1943. Big news in July of 1943 was the Allied invasion of Sicily during World War II. It's a long time. In 70 years, most of us are going to be gone, right? I mean, maybe the very youngest of us here might still be around, but most of us, 70 years, we're going to be gone. So how does that affect how you live in a city, how you live in a place? If you know you're only going to be there two years are you going to be there 70 years? You see, what prevents us from seeking the thriving, the flourishing of our city is misunderstanding and who we are and and how we relate to the world around us. You see, when we misunderstand who we're called to be in the city, when we misunderstand how long we're going to be here, what our role is, then we go about approaching our city in all the wrong ways. And there's at least three ways in which Christians, both past and present, have have kind of gone wrong as they seek to relate to the city, the place in which they find themselves. And and I want to look at those this morning for us. And so the first one is separation. And this is basically what the false prophets were advised to the people of Israel as they were in Babylon. They were saying, look, you're only going to be here for two years. So so don't get involved in the city. Stay on the outskirts of the city. Don't, Don't go into the heart of the city. Don't get involved. Don't... Don't try to be a part of the city. Just, just hunker down and wait it out. You're just going to be here for two years. Stay on the edge of the city. Stay separate. And, and you're going to go home soon. And sort of an, an extreme example of an approach to kind of a separation approach to the city today would be someone like a group like the Amish, right? Where, where they live completely apart um, from the city and kind of communities of their own and, and they, don't, they don't get involved and, and while most of us wouldn't be that extreme, um, a lot of us have the impulse to kind of have a, a separationist approach to the city. And I kind of call this like the uh, the rubber gloves approach to the city. So you think about, you want to stay separate. You want to stay dif- distant from the city. And this is the approach that says we need to create separate kind of Christian cultural institutions. So you have Christian pop music and, and Christian TV and, and Christian movies and Christian sports leagues and, and on and on. And and none of these things are necessarily inherently bad or are necessarily wrong, but they spring from an impulse that, that, dev- that desires to avoid interacting with the people and place where God has called us. Now, out of genuine concern, right, all, these, all these distortions comes out of good desires, right? Usually, uh, if you have a strong desire for separation, you, you care about holiness. You care about what God wants. You, you don't want to be perceived as being part of a system that is opposed to God. You want to avoid sin. Those are good things. But if you follow that approach consistently, you'll lead you to have very little meaningful contact with those outside of the world of the church, and it also tends, over time, to make you fearful and self-righteous. If you have a strong separationist approach, you, you tend to always feel as though you're being threatened by the culture at large. And you also, at the same time, tend to feel self-righteous, to feel like you're better than the city you're in, that you have the superior knowledge, that you're, you're better than, than all of those people over there. So this comes from a rightly healthy emphasis on on the the reality of sin and brokenness and and the reality of of how easy it is for us to get caught up in the things of the city. But ultimately, those who who hold a strong separationist position, they have a weaker view of creation and new creation and the goodness of the world that God has made and, and the common grace that he has that extends to all people and that holds up all things. So another wrong way of, of relating to the city that, that prevents thriving is the opposition approach. And opposition is, actually looks very similar in some ways to separation, but rather than sort of withdrawing from the city and, and being hunkered down, an opposition approach um, is kind of where we're an action-oriented, take it to the streets and, and kind of press our will onto the city approach. And, and this is kind of, if you have separation is kind of the, the latex gloves, uh, the opposition approach is the boxing gloves. There's, it's a combative stance to the city. And it speaks of kind of a a revolt or an overthrow, if not the city of itself, at least of of this mayor or or that senator or or that institution. And it's an adversarial approach that that seeks influence through kind of channels of of hard power like titles and position and and laws, etc. Now this position has a lot more contact with the city, right, Um, than the separation approach, but the the contact is, is viewed as combat. The city is an enemy almost to be defeated rather than a neighbor to be loved and served and sacrificed for. And, and again, this distortion is a distortion of a good desire, right? A, a desire to encourage the city to, to live according to God's design, to see the best of, of how God has designed the world to work and to bring that into a place of, of uh, being enshrined in, in law and good principles and good leadership, right? This doesn't come from a, a bad impulse, It wants to see God's design embraced in all of life. But again, it fails to recognize the the goodness uh, and common grace that God has in the world. And it it also, too, tends to give us a perspective of fear or, or pride, and usually both, toward the city. Well, a third approach that prevents thriving this approach is assimil- uh, called assimilation. And assimilation, this was actually the goal of the Babylonians in bringing exiles from all these different lands that they conquered. They wanted to assimilate these peoples that they conquered into Babylonian culture. So when John read for us, you notice that it talked about the craftsmen and the metal workers and the leaders. They brought the best and the brightest of all the people that they had conquered into Babylon, into the capital city. And they wanted them to experience life in the city, and, and many Near Eastern uh, ancient Eastern scholars point out that this was the preferred strategy for dealing with the conquered people: invite them in and give them power, but only if they become like you. So they wanted them to lose their cultural identity of whatever city or culture they were from, and to take on the cultural identity of Babylon. And again, this distortion, um, again, this, so this separation, if you think of separation as this kind of rubber glove approach, if you think of opposition as, as the boxing glove approach, assimilation is kind of the, uh, the, the hand-holding approach. You just hold the hand of the city, and, and you go along with the city and, and whatever it does. It, it walks hand-in-hand hand with the city, uncritically adopting its attitudes and perspectives and habits and patterns of life. And again, this approach is a distortion of a good desire. To, you know, there's a good desire to understand the city, to want to be relevant to the city, to understand how it works, to appreciate the culture of the city. However, the assimilation approach ends up lacking a place from which it can challenge the city, a place where it can call the city to change, to be something better than it is. And here the problem isn't a lack of a of a strong view of creation, but really a lack of a strong view of of how broken every one of us is as a person and how difficult it is to bring people who are, who are truly opposed to God to bring about good out of that. But you see, assimilation is often the hardest one to recognize in ourselves. I've been mean, all of us in the room. We all have a certain inclination towards all, one, all three of these, but we probably lean toward one or another. But assimilation is the hardest to recognize in ourselves. Because if you're going to take a stance of of opposition or separation, it's kind of an active choice that you're making, right? You're saying, I don't like that, and so either I'm going to oppose it and I'm going to be active in trying to change it, or you say, I'm going to separate from that. But you're sort of aware of those things. You have your list of things that you oppose and the things that you separate from. But assimilation, we don't really make a choice there. We just sort of go with the flow. And so assimilation is often the hardest one to recognize, We don't usually make the choice of, oh, I'm really going to try to uh, consciously adopt all these practices of the city around me. We just end up sort of going along with the flow, and it happens. But what's ironic, actually, is that really to be an adversary of the city, to take this kind of boxing gloves approach, or to have an assimilation approach, this sort of hand-in-hand approach to the city, really comes back to the same fundamental problem which is a desire to have an unhealthy amount of power. You see, the adversarial approach says, I don't like you, and so I'm going to defeat you to gain power. But the assimilation approach says, I, well, I can't defeat you, so I'm going to become like you to gain power. So they both end up being rooted in a, in a desire for, for power, for control. So which one of these approaches are you most inclined to, and Why? You know, often the approach that we're most inclined to ends up mapping to what the deep kind of root idols of our heart are. Let let me explain that. So if you, an an idol is something that that gives you comfort, that gives you security and meaning and purpose and significance in life, anything that really takes the place of God. So, for example, if if you idolize acceptance, if you idolize control or, or comfort, you know, those are two big ones for me. I, I want people to like me. I want to be accepted. If, if you idolize acceptance or, or comfort, you're probably going to be inclined to an assimilation approach, right? If you go along with the city, if you go hand in hand with it, people are going to like you. People are going to accept you. People are going to not be angry at you. And, and they're, going to, they're going to give you a more comfortable life. It's, a, it's comfortable to assimilate. It's easy but let's say you idolize control, and, and, and often control and comfort go hand in hand, too. So let's say you idolize comfort and control. Then, then separation might be an approach that you take, because if you separate from the broader culture, you have this place of comfort, control. You, you, it's your kind of space that's controlled. You don't have to interact with the, the messy world of the city. But if, Or if you tend to idolize power or influence or position, you may be more inclined to kind of that oppositional approach. To want, to want to gain a, a position of power or influence and, and to be able to, to bring about um, what you think is best, right? But you see, Jeremiah doesn't let us get away with any of these. Um, and, and many Christians have tried all these approaches, both today and in the past. But, but Jeremiah says that, that God's people, living as exiles, they, they're to live differently in the city. But, but how are they to live? What is it that produces... Thriving. If these are the things that kind of prevent us from taking an approach to the city that thrives, how do we produce thriving? Well, thriving is produced when we understand that we are sent in to live a life of faithful presence and sacrificial service in the city. Thriving is produced when, when we understand that we are sent to live a life of faithful presence and sacrificial service in the city. Look again at Jeremiah chapter 29 in in verses 4 through 7. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the, to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And do you notice know the, the sending language in those verses? That section of, of verses 4 through 7, it's bookended with this language of sending. You notice he says at the beginning of the, that section, it says to all the exiles whom I have sent. And at the end, the city where I have sent you you see, God has sent you wherever you are. You don't live in your neighborhood by accident. You don't have your job, your place of vocation, your, your, your place of contribution. is isn't random. It isn't an accident. You have been sent there. Now, just because you've been sent doesn't mean you'll, you like it or you like the place you're at, right? I mean, this text is a prime example of that. These people have been sent into exile. They've been taken out of their homeland through a violent conflict and brought into another country. They, they, this is not a pleasant place to be. But the language of the text says twice that they were sent there. You see, even in God's judgment as of his people, he's still sending them out on mission. It, just, it kind of blows my mind when you think about that. Even as they're being judged... God is still sending them. He still has a plan for them. So you may not love the place where you're at right now, but you can be confident that God has sent you there and he will seek your welfare in that place. I think oftentimes we we wrongly assume if I could just get to the right place, the, the right job, the right city, the right neighborhood, then I would really thrive. Then I would really flourish. But you see, the key to thriving isn't Necessarily getting to, to our idea of what the right spot is. But it's recognizing that, that at least for the moment, that where we are is the place that God has sent us. No matter how much you hate it, th- th- this is the place He has you for this moment. And how can you serve in that place? Okay, so, so we've established we're sent. Great. But, but what are we sent there for? Look at verse seven. It says, Seek to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and to pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. We are sent to seek the welfare of the city. Now the word translated welfare there is it's the Hebrew word shalom. And, and if you, it's a really significant word in the Old Testament, this word shalom, and it's, it's actually used a lot, and usually it's translated peace. So oftentimes you'll be reading through your Bible, peace, often the word underneath that is the word shalom. In fact, last week if you were with us and we were looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and the Messiah, this promised Messiah is described as, as the wonderful counselor, this, this mighty God, the Prince of Peace. That same word there, the Prince of Shalom. And shalom is one of the richest words in the Bible. It basically means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom is a picture of flourishing and thriving in every single way, in socially, economically, spiritually. It isn't just the absence of conflict. You know, Peace, in this, in this sense, isn't just that there isn't a war going on, but that there's total flourishing, total thriving in every dimension of life. I think that the, the Net Bible translation captures the sense of, of verse 7 perfectly. It, it, it reads like this. It says, Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. I love that. It says, Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. So if, if separation is sort of the rubber gloves approach, and opposition is the boxing gloves approach. And if assimilation is kind of the, the hand-in-hand approach, this approach of faithful presence in the city, this is the work glove approach. This is the approach that, that puts on the work gloves and gets to work in the city. I love, again, that's why the, the, within the net translation word it says work, work to see that the city where I have sent you enjoys peace and prosperity. In the primary place that we contribute to the wholeness, the welfare, the goodness, the, the shalom of our city is through our vocation, through the place of contribution that, that God has called you, whether it's as, as a teacher or as a nurse or as leading a company or, or, or raising a family. So basically what God is saying to his people here is he says, don't lose your distinct identity as my people. Don't, don't assimilate. But he says also don't, don't hide your identity as my people. That's the separation He also says, but but don't force your identity as my people onto the city. Rather, he says, leverage. Leverage your identity as my people for the good of the city. Take this approach of of faithful presence, of sacrificial service. And and this is completely different than the other three. Basically, all the other three approaches are based on the principle of of my shalom first, my agenda first, my tribe first, my group first, my, my family first. But God says, no, no, the city comes first. Others first. Th- those who are not like me first. Those who have nothing to offer to me in return first. You see, you're not thriving. We're not thriving unless our city is thriving. So in other words, God is saying to his church that, that your job is not just merely to survive in the place where I've placed you, but your, your job is to, to, to thrive, to serve, to sacrifice for the city. Okay, so so how do we do this? What does this actually look like? Well, we'll look again at the text, beginning in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. Build houses and live in them. So So again, think about this. You might buy a house if you are going to be someplace for two years i mean certainly maybe pre-2007 you thought that might be a good investment i'll buy a house if i'm only going to live there for two years i don't know if a lot of people think that anymore um but you would never build a house if you were only going to be somewhere two years right i mean by the time you, you picked out the plot of land and you got the designs drawn up and hired the contract by the time that thing is built in two years you're by the time you move in you're going to have to move out and leave right so this is a sign of permanence. Jeremiah says, build houses. You're going to be there for, for 70 years. Build houses and live in them. Next he says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Again, if you're only going to be a place 18 to 24 months, a big investment in farming isn't really a wise deal, right? I mean, it takes a while for your crops to get planted and for a field to really to, to thrive and to have a maximum amount of harvest. But he says, no, plant gardens and eat their produce. And then he says, get married, have kids, and then have your kids get married and have kids. Multiply. And not later on. You know, again, you could see these people if they thought, well, we're just going to be here for two years. We're not going to, we're not going to get married. We're not going to have our kids get married. We're not going to start having families. We're just going to wait until we go back home. And then we'll do those things. But God says, no, no, in the place where you're at, in the situation, regardless of whether it's ideal job or ideal neighborhood, no, start multiplying right there where you're at, in this place. But why do we think that God put these three commands together? Why, why are they grouped together like this? To, to build houses, um, to plant gardens, to have a family. Well, those three commands, are, are, they're used uh, together in a couple other places in the Bible. And I think this is so fascinating. One other place in, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 20. All of those three commands occur in the same place. In Deuteronomy 20 was written right about the time that the Israelites were about to go to war. And Deuteronomy 20 includes those three things. Building a house, planting a field, or having a child as exemptions from military service. So if you had just built a house, or if you just planted a garden, or if you had just gotten married, if you were just starting a family, then you were not to serve in the military. So, so why does this matter for Jeremiah 29? Well, Jeremiah wrote, as he was writing this letter, there was a group of the exiles who wanted to take that opposition approach. They wanted to try to overthrow Babylon. They wanted to be the resistance group that would sort of undermine Babylon and overthrow it. But God is saying to them with these commands, I, don't want you, I want you to do these things that exempt you from military service. I don't want you to go to war with Babylon. God is calling them to seek Babylon's good, not its destruction. All these things are, are what you do in a time of peace that exempt you from military service. And then finally he calls them to pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. I was really struck by that again. Do, do we pray for our city? I pray for a lot of things, but do I pray for Kansas City? Maybe we should. See, if this is true, if, if this way of interacting with the city with these work gloves on, and of building houses and, and living in them and planting gardens, if this idea of faithful presence and sacrificial service in the city, if this is true, then it, then it begins to change everything, Right? Because your job no longer is about making a name for yourself, but it's about encouraging others. It's about lifting others up into flourishing. Your family isn't no longer just about you and, and your sake, but it's about, about the community at large. And, and Christians lived this out early on. I, I love studying early church history. And, and when you realize this, they were a counterculture in, in ancient Rome and in the second century. There's a, a great document called The Letter to Diognetius. And it describes Christians as this odd group of people. They were so different from the world around them, and people just couldn't figure them out because they they lived so differently. And one of the things in the letter of Diognetus that it it points out is that Christians, it said they lived in such a way that they had a common table, but not a common bed. They had a common table, but not a common bed. You see, in, in ancient Rome, people were extremely stingy with their with their money, with their resources, with their with their food, right? They were they were greedy with their money and their resources, but they were they were very liberal with their bodies. So you had the temple prostitution and mistresses and and all this kind of thing, right? So they were they the larger culture was stingy with money, but liberal with their bodies. And Christians completely flipped this around. They're they incredibly liberal with their with their resources. They're prodigious with their money, with their food. Come, we share. With with you, all of our, our our food, our resources, with anyone in need, but then they're, always, they're they're incredibly stingy with their bodies. They they practice this monogamy of of, of marriage between one man and one woman, and, and there's no uh, infidelity. You know, this is complete. So it's radically different. And in the church, the Christian community is a place where these good gifts of money and sex and power are used radically differently. Where, where money is is used to enrich others. Where where power is used to ensure the well being of those who are weak, where sex is used as a way to to commit to one person forever and a way of producing life. You see, the the Christian community is this this counterculture for the common good that uses these gifts of money and sex and power in in radically different ways. So what might that look like for us today? Just several questions to consider here. First, are you really present in Kansas City, where you live right now, are you putting down roots like Jeremiah called the Jews to do in Babylon? Are you really putting down roots here? And, and in a, a world where we're so transient, where jobs can take us all over the place at a, at a moment's notice, we may not know, you may not know how long you're going to be here, but, but do you act as though you're going to be here for a long time? Is that kind of the governing principle? You say, I'm going I'm to treat this as the place I'm going to be forever even if I'm only going to be here for a short time? Second, is the common good, this idea of, of seeking the welfare, the shalom of the city, is this, is this a category that really even enters our minds in, in decision-making? So if you do have an opportunity uh, for a, a great job in another city, it, is one of the questions that you even ask of yourself is, well, how would this affect the work I'm doing in my city right now? I mean, yes, it's a promotion, and yes, I, I could make more money, but is it possible that God would call me to decline that in order to continue the, the work that I'm doing in my own city? Just just a thought. Is that a, for me, that's not even a category that usually enters my mind. It's not the final arbitrating principle, but it, do we consider that in our decisions? Third, are you serving your city? And I hinted at it earlier, but the, the primary way that we serve our city is through our vocation what you do 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, right? I mean, this isn't necessarily having to think through how can I possibly, on top of all the work I'm already doing, add a bunch of volunteer work on top of it. I mean, that's important to do. But do we recognize that our vocation, that the thing that God has gifted you at doing, the thing that that you do Monday through Saturday for 50-plus hours a week, that is the place where God has called you to contribute. Do you see your job primarily as just a means of remuneration for you? Our place of contribution to the city as a whole? How do we think about our work? So, we've looked at what prevents thriving and what produces thriving, but what, what powers thriving? I mean, the task of seeking the comprehensive well being of a, of a city of, what's the metro area in Kansas City, two million people? I mean, that seems a little overwhelming, at least to me. I mean, maybe for you, you think that's, I've got that under control. For me, that seems incredibly daunting. So how in the world do we, do we find the, the energy? I mean, again, if you're anything like me, sometimes it feels like all I can do to get through with my day's work, come home, empty the dishwasher before I nod off to bed at night, right? How do we have the power, the, the energy to be able to, to even think about living in a sacrificial way for our neighbors and our city around us? Well, I mean, there's lots of things we could say here, but I just want us to, to keep two in mind. First, is remember the city that is to come. And second, remember the God who will build that city. So, so first, remember the city that is to come. You see, the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 in a garden, but it ends in Revelation in twenty one, chapter 21 with a city. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the, heaven and the, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You see, the city is the garden brought to completion and perfection. The city is the garden brought to completion and perfection. And there is a city coming where God will dwell with his people, where well, all things will be made right, where well, every single tear will be wiped away. It is a city where everyone flourishes. You see, God's city is the only city where every tongue and tribe and nation are included and no one is oppressed. City, God's city is the only city that doesn't flatten human culture but brings it to its absolute fullness. Right? In the New Jerusalem, every tongue and tribe and nation and all the best of culture is there. No group is oppressed. No, no culture is superior or inferior to another. Every tribe and tongue and nation is there. You see, the hope and confidence that this city is coming empowers our efforts right now to give ourselves and our city a foretaste of that city here and now. So remember the city that's coming. And second, remember the God who will build that city book of Hebrews chapter 11 says that God's people are looking forward to a city that has its foundations whose designer and builder is God. See, God is the one who is building the true city. And his son, his only son, is the one who makes that city possible. See, Jesus shows us perfectly what it means to be in the world and yet not of it. He is the one who eats with sinners and yet doesn't assimilate to their sin. He is holy and and, and totally pure without being separatistic. Rather than oppressing his enemies, he dies for them. Rather than cursing them, he prays for them. Jesus is the ultimate exile who comes from a far country into a far off land that is not his own, but not because of his sin, but to rescue and redeem those who are condemned to death because of their sin. You see, therefore, as we come to the communion table this morning, we embrace the life and death and resurrection of the one who loves our city far more than we do. We embrace the life and the death and resurrection of the one who has sacrificed himself for us, his enemies, that he might call us his friends. And more than that, that he might call us sons and daughters. So as you come to the communion table this morning and receive the elements, you proclaim to all who are here that you are by nature and by choice an enemy of God, but that thanks be to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus that you have been forgiven, that you have been brought in, that your identity is now beloved son and beloved daughter of the one true king of the city who has sent you into the city to serve. Now you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. Um, if you are willing to say that I am an enemy of God, but that Jesus' sacrifice has made me whole, that I'm forgiven by his blood, then you are welcome at the table. So when you come to the table, uh, gather in groups of four or five and just uh, and partake together. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then when everyone's done that, partake together in those groups and there's four communion stations around the room there's there's two in the back and then there's two here in the front Um, this one in the back corner here has gluten-free communion elements available if that's something that you need and when you receive communion it works best if you kind of exit through these side aisles and then return to your seat through the center aisle and especially if you're a guest with us you've probably already noticed that the pews are pretty narrow Um, If you need to kind of bump into someone a little bit as you're getting in or out of your seat, we're we're used to that. It's okay. Um, It's a family here, so it's all right. Um, It's not a problem. So now take your time. Don't feel rushed. Enjoy this moment. Come to the table and taste and touch the goodness of Jesus Christ and the hope that there is a new and better city coming. that gives us the power to work for a new and better city even here and now today. Come to the Lord's table when you're ready.